This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, An American Story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Or our levels, checking levels. Get those levels. Author Tony Ranke thinks Christians have made a wrong turn with technology, and he's out to steer us right. We're coming along for the ride. This is Device and Virtue. back to Device and Virtue, where we argue the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life. We're coming to you from Chicago. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. And today we are talking with Tony Ranke, a senior teacher at Desiring God. He has a new book out. It's yeah, called yeah, yeah. God, Technology, and the Christian Life. He's calling it a biblical theology of technology. And yeah. he's exploring how man's innovation relates to God's purposes. Yeah, Tony's been around for a while. He calls himself a journalist and tech optimist. Tech optimist. Which is, I mean, wait, I mean, was that your favorite yeah, thing? <laughs> at, at that point, I was like, I can't, I can't do this. I don't know. <laughs> no, but he's talking about what pastors and Christians are getting wrong about technology. Ooh, and ooh. we're going to dive in and find out what it is. But first, what we should do is thank people. Like We've done this new thing we've been launching on Patreon. We're right. getting people to support the podcast via this site called Patreon. And we want to say thank you to the people that have signed up already. That's awesome. Yes. Yes. Thank you. It's so great to have some supporters. It's super encouraging. We have a goal to get 50 supporters this season Yep. because we did our 50th episode just last last time. <laughs> and and so we signed up 50. That'd be good. No, really 50 yeah. supporters would be no, perfect. And I've heard that when you talked with Tony, he gave you a special thing. Yeah. So we are going to do a giveaway of his book. So if you sign up by May 30th. So if you sign up before our next episode comes out, we before, do an episode every two weeks, every two weeks on Mondays. Yeah. So if you sign up by May 30th, we will send you this book, God, Technology, and the Christian Life. For free? For free. Nice. So you sign up. Support us, and we'll make it happen. Benefits of Crossway and and Tony Ranke. Yeah. Yes, thanks to both of them. And also, if you do sign up, you will have access to the extended cut of this interview. Ooh, there's an an extended cut. Yes, there will be be an extended cut. (laughs) Tony and I had a great conversation, and we just couldn't include it all in this episode. Right. So we have an extended cut, and you will be able to access that on Patreon if you sign up. And we're continuing the bonus that we're offering at the beginning of the season, which is we put together a a list of other books that we think are really important about technology and faith. And if people are thinking through, how do I engage with this or what should I read first, especially pastors or Christian leaders trying to figure out what are the sources, what are the voices that I need to check out? We put together sort of our little private Chris and Adam list, (laughs) and we're giving that to every new Patreon member as well. 
Yeah, we called it seven tech books we believe in. Tech writers that Chris and Adam can agree on. <laughs> I mean, moderately agree. Moderately on. agree on. <laughs> but you know. And even if you don't want to support us, I still say go check out our Patreon page. There's a couple pictures of us. And I just wanted to draw your attention to one thing. There's two pictures of Chris. One is from about five of years me? ago. Yeah. You're holding up a smartphone. It was our first like public event. From like five years ago. Yeah. We did this event here in Chicago. I think it was our smartphones ruining our lives, I think is what it was called. Oh, yeah, yeah. We did a talk. So there's that picture of you. And then right next to it is another picture of you. Uh And in the first one, you had no gray hair. And in the second one, now we've been uh, (laughs) arguing for a while. And clearly, I'm taking responsibility for that gray hair because I think I've stressed you out enough. Over the last five years. You're saying there's a noticeable increase of the gray hairs. Yes. So even if you don't support us, go check out the Patreon page and check out Chris's gray hair. I think it's fantastic. Oh, it is. I'm so stressed. That's wisdom, man. That's wisdom from dealing with me. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. Well, now that you got that in there, I guess I'll go listen to this interview with Tony and we'll come see you on the other side. Perfect. Tony, welcome to Device and Virtue. It's great to have you. Man, it's my joy to be on, Adam. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So you have been at Desiring God for a long time. You've hosted a podcast for, what did you say, 1,800 episodes now? 1,800 episodes, yeah. Oh, man. So you are a veteran when it comes to this (laughs) stuff, which is awesome. We just celebrated our 50th episode. So we're just, man, a drop in the bucket of what you've done, which is crazy. But I'm so glad you joined us. We're here to talk about your new book, God, Technology, and the Christian Life. And this is actually your third book related to technology, right? Exactly. Yeah. I remember when 12 Ways Your Smartphone is Changing You came out, I was like, that is a fantastic title. And in the intro to this book, you say that sort of the kernel of this book was kind of born in Mm -hmm. the introduction to that book. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I just realized there's more to say about technology. And when I say the word technology, most Christians think smartphones and social media and iPhones and things like that. They just go digital media. And that, I think, is about 2% of the tech that we use daily. (laughs) (laughs) And so I said, I need to write a book about the 98%. Yeah, we're so much on the same page with Device and Virtue. We're consistently talking about predecessors to our current technology that we're seeing these patterns play out in our technology today that have been kind of longstanding. And that's definitely something that you have talked about in this book, which I really enjoyed digging into. And yeah, I want to just kind of start with the back cover, actually. So on the back cover, it labels you as a tech optimist. I don't know if that's a title you would adopt for yourself, but I'm curious if it is, how how does that sort of optimism, how has it shaped this book? And how has Mm -hmm. the writing of this book sort of informed your optimism? Yeah, I am a tech optimist, self-labeled so without shame. I don't cower from that claim. I make it early. I make it often. I make it in the cover because I know this optimism opens me immediately to critique from dystopians who dominate the the tech conversation in the church. Hmm. And they have dominated it for a very long time now. And it's a way for me to say that those glory days are done. There's a a lot more to say to the story about tech than the Tower of Babel. Like, we got it. Let's move beyond that story. There's Mm -hmm. more to say. And so the sort of neo-Luddites have enjoyed pretty uncontested dominance in the church for a very long time to the yeah. point that I think uh, many Christians just assume that dissing on human technology is godliness. 
Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. in the 1950s, if you dissed on card playing and dancing, that was godly. <laughs> and today, if you diss on technology, oh. and I say it tongue in cheek, but to be honest, I mean, that's where the church is at. If you diss on technology, you're being more godly than if you celebrate technology. Right. And right. I'm sort of putting a stake in the ground. And I'm saying those days are done. We're going to think about this differently. There's a few contemporary writers who have tried to slide some form of tech optimism in the back door incognito, but it's, it gets smelled out. And, you know, as soon as you go optimistic, subtly or overtly, you invite criticism. And so I wrote this book expecting that criticism. I wrote this book inviting that criticism because Mm -hmm. I am a a tech optimist. I say it with posture. I say it with backbone. And I'm ready for the sparks to fly to defend it. And that's what's going to happen. I'm serious. Mm. And this book is my case. I mean, it is optimism with a backbone and optimism that will praise God Mm. for the tens of thousands of innovations that we use daily. Mm. And I'm going to voice that praise. I'm going to praise God who governs every square inch of Silicon Valley. I'm going to praise the God who made Elon Musk to be Elon Musk. And that's what I think the tech conversation in the church has lacked for a century now is optimism, but it's also by necessity a confrontive optimism that resists the status quo. And I hope in the end it's a constructive optimism. I really want to build something new that's going to last, but it's Mm. going to be foreign Mm. and people aren't going to know what to do with it. So how have people been reacting to your optimism and why do you think pessimism is sort of this default mode for Christians? Oh, boy. It's a long story. My best guess is to say that the doctrine of common grace was eroded about 100 years ago once the world wars began. Hmm. And once the world wars began and once common grace sort of got pushed into the background by the church's theologians, Mm -hmm. the church really lacked the theological categories it needed for dealing with what it means to live in an age in which God uses non-Christians to do tremendously amazing technological things for the benefit of us all. Basically, between the Civil War in America and World War One was the mm-hmm. greatest watershed of technological advance the world that has ever seen. And with it, the church was developing a doctrine of common grace. Mm-hmm. And then I think once you hit 1913, once you hit the World Wars, common grace goes out the window. Mm-hmm. And that's why for, I think, the past 100 years, the dystopians, the Luddites have just run the show. Because mm-hmm. once common grace is out of the picture, you can just diss on technology all day long and not think that you're actually dissing God's common grace. Yeah. So that would be my theory is that once you can start killing humans at scale with war weapons, it becomes harder and harder to defend common grace. And yet I think it still applies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like to imagine that all creation is God's creation. Like you said, every yeah. square inch of yeah. Silicon Valley, right? And mm-hmm. if all creation is God's creation, then that also includes technology and I think what you're trying to do in this book is unpack the implications of that and the implications of common grace. I'm intrigued with the notion of tech optimism because one of the key people that you interact with throughout the book is Jacques Alol, who I would not call a tech optimist. Is there a reason you chose him as a key conversation partner? Yeah, he gets the complexity of God's relationship to human cities. Okay, He, He gets it better than anybody else. And what I realized halfway through my research on this book is that a biblical theology of technology, which is what I was writing, how does God relate to human engineering and human innovation? That story and the story of the cities of man Uh is the same exact story. Yeah. (laughs) And so once I realized that, I started to realize like, okay, well, who are the theologians who have traced out the complex relationship of God's relationship to human city making. And uh, Jacques L. Yule, his On the Meaning of the City is the best book that's ever been written. I couldn't find anything that was better. Yeah. He understands God's complex relationship to the city. 
and the blessings of the city that come to us. And so that's a paradigm for how we think of technology as well. Yeah. He is a really interesting writer, thinker. And yeah, The Meaning of the City was a book that I really enjoyed. It was a fascinating read and his interpretive lens on tracing the city through scripture was such a fascinating, enjoyable roller coaster. So early in the book, you described a Copernican revolution, you called it, uh, a Copernican revolution in your thinking about science. Now you believe science is the art of listening to the creator, the art of following out the patterns and possibilities that God coded into creation, which we'll jump into all of that more. But I'm curious, before that revolution, what was your perspective on science? And how do you see this new perspective Mm -hmm. of listening to the creator influencing technology and innovation? Well, I didn't understand tech trees. That was what was missing in my thinking. I did what I think a lot of people do today and simply critique tech as if tech just sort of came into existence overnight. Uh-huh. So mRNA vaccines, mm-hmm. thumbs up or thumbs down? How about smartphones? Thumbs up or thumbs down? AI, rockets to Mars, cryptocurrency, electric cars, thumbs up, thumbs down, nuclear power plants. Should we keep them open or close them all down today? And I fail to appreciate that we live inside of a massive research and development lab where rudimentary discoveries of 100 years ago are becoming more complex, maybe cheaper, more reliable, and hopefully safer and more efficient over time. And so all of our innovations that we use now are leading to further stages later on. And so that's what was missing. So the tech trees are sort of these ancestral trees, this Mm -hmm. idea that these highly advanced technologies are built on simpler technologies from an earlier age, which are in turn all the way back to a rock and a wheel. That's right. Okay. And so then the art of listening, how does that connect into this? Yeah. So patterning, I think, is the category that is one I go back to over and over again. Uh, Deuteronomy 8 is sort of the example that I use in how do we think of the creation as a patterned thing that God gave us. Um, Among other texts in scripture, that whole chapter of Deuteronomy 8 details the promised land, which is a land that will flow with milk and honey. But that's not really what strikes me about chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 9, what's interesting is that this good land that God is going to give his people is good because it's been richly loaded or preloaded with iron and copper deposits, too. Hmm. So it's not just milk and honey that will flow there. Molten iron and copper is going to flow there as well. Israel is going to lack nothing technologically because all the iron and all the copper tools and technologies that she will need in the future Hmm. have been pre-infused into the promised land itself, into the material elements loaded in the ground of the promised land. It is all pre-deposited into the land as a divine gift to them. That's a pattern, Hmm. uh, a pattern from God, a pattern for Israel's material flourishing that's been set in place before they arrive. It's all sort of a bait to Hmm. lure forth human discovery and invention so that we can behold God's generosity in the new shiny things we hold in our hands that we make. Things like cars and jets and smartphones. Like We're supposed to hold those things and be like, wow, this is gift. This is gift. (laughs) So that art of listening, it's a little bit metaphorical, but it's this idea of paying attention to the world around us and the contents of it. Like you're saying, the copper and the iron, like if we pay attention and and ask, how can I use this? What can I make of it? That's that sort of scientific art of listening and recognizing what are the patterns and possibilities there. Okay. And Isaiah 28 tells us that when we use tools and technologies to our flourishing, 
we didn't just randomly come up with some inventive way to use the materials that we have. God was teaching us through mm. his creation. Mm. Mm. I'm really glad that you brought up this idea of patterning. That was something I definitely noticed as I was working through the book was that theme. And you talk about that idea that creation has this inherent pattern to it. Mm. You write, the natural patterns of this creation led to these technologies we now have in hand. And by God's intentional patterns, he limited the world's natural resources and their abundance or scarcity. So how does this pattern guide humans to innovate? You sort of acknowledge this pattern. How does it inform technological innovation? Yeah, so there's actually a couple of different patterns. I mean, the patterns work in sort of two different directions. One, there's a pattern that inspires us, and there's a pattern that restrains or keeps in check what we make. So there's a creative possibility okay. that is held in check by patterns of human flourishing. So we have patterns for our possibilities. That's the material elements in the creation that we take and we make. And then we also have patterns to limit what we do. This is because the possibilities in creation exceed human flourishing. Okay. So the smartphone is a great example of what's possible in this creation when it comes to communications devices. We have 60 elements taken from the earth, an earth that God gave us as a gift, 60 elements we extract, we refine, we compress into a handheld device that we use to communicate, which is amazing. We adopted the, the smartphone, right? Mm -hmm. And now we're doing with it what we do with all technologies that we adopt. We mm -hmm. are now adapting it. So in the case of the iPhone, we're learning to maximize its possibilities for our flourishing, namely learning how to limit its place in our lives. That's what we're <laughs> trying to figure out now. And you don't have to be a Christian to see and to fix many of the problems introduced by smartphone overuse. I mean, these are patterns of flourishing that we can all see are, are broken via God's general revelation. So the promised land is loaded with material elements. I mentioned that earlier. And it's going to lead to the making of the tools and weapons Israel needs, which is a great gift. Okay. And that same exact ground is loaded with metals that can be extracted, forged, and be used to create the idols that will replace God. Mm -hmm. Right? And so the danger of Deuteronomy 8 is a warning that we need today because we're all in danger of living in a world where we invent and we become more comfortable by the things that we invent and we just forget the generosity of God. And this is where the church is hazardously situated right now because when we think of all the tech that we use, the cars, the homes, the highways, the financial systems, jet travel, space travel, the stock market, the internet, when we don't trace our technological riches back to the generosity of God, we just assume all these things and we take them for granted. And this is one of the rotten fruits that we get with the Luddites and the dystopians who dominate the conversation unchecked is they teach us to be okay with a life that's just devoid of tech gratitude. Hmm. So it's not just I'm a tech optimist. Isn't this fun? It's I'm a tech optimist because we've got to trace these gifts back to the giver. Hmm. Otherwise, we assume these gifts and we assume the creator who gave them to us. And that's the warning that's given to us in Deuteronomy chapter eight. Hmm. With this notion of patterning, an image came to mind of uh, wood grain, and you typically need to sand wood along the grain, because if yeah. you don't, you're going to create all sorts of problems. And it sounds, though, as we're thinking about technology, you do recognize that innovators and technologists can, rather than listening to creation, they can sort of sand against the grain 
of creation. Mm -hmm. And in the book, you write, God has also patterned a creation that can produce far beyond what Christians will endorse morally. And technology puts into our hands new powers to break creational patterns and accomplish what is unnatural. So you mentioned that there's kind of a couple different patterns. There's a pattern of flourishing. Maybe there's a pattern of inspiration, a pattern of restraint. How are they influencing what humans see? Are these determinative? Are they directive? Just because it's a possibility doesn't mean that that in and of itself should be something that is adopted. So again, creation can produce beyond what we can endorse morally. So there's a general revelation governor on all things where we realize, oh, putting that stuff in our air conditionings, actually, when it leaks out, it pokes holes in the ozone. Let's not make that. Or that food additive we put in that causes cancer, let's not use that anymore. Or that asbestos that we use for insulation, which works so great as insulation, isn't so good for us is breaking our bodies. And so that's the interplay. Once we adopt something, we've got to adapt it. And so I think the patterns work in both ways. The patterns lure us to make new things, but the patterns also limit what we do with those. That's what wisdom is. I mean, in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is trying to get us to live with the grain pattern of the creator's intent for his creation, right? So to live wisely is to follow the grain of the the creator. And so we can break that pattern. We can cut against the grain, so to speak. And so I think there's multiple layers. We know that there's general revelation limiters. If this breaks down our bodies, if this breaks down our environment, we need to rethink it, you know, so you can bring in the conversation over climate change here. And then there's patterns of possibility in the material creation. This idea that God didn't booby trap this world and be like, oh, let's set up a bunch of traps to see if they'll invent that thing, to see if they'll invent (laughs) nuclear power, if they'll start doing genetic modification. It's not like that. That's definitely not how I see the creation. I see the creation as something that's narrowly constrained in its possibilities, highly constrained. I mean, what, 97% of startups in Silicon Valley fail in five years? And so you start to realize like, what we can actually do in this creation is highly constrained and highly limited by the materials available to us, natural laws that are in place, laws of flourishing. It is a highly constrained sandbox. It is a sandbox for us to play in and, and make and invent and discover, but it's highly constrained by God. And I think that's one of those points that I don't think Christians quite appreciate. Hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So we started this interview talking a little bit about how all creation is God's creation. And you just said a bit ago that creation can produce things that we can't endorse morally. And I think you recognize this paradox a bit. And I think listeners will have already noticed the paradox as well. This idea that, okay, God creates general revelation. He creates creation with these patterns, with this grain that we can follow And yet, it does allow for the possibilities to exceed human flourishing, to go beyond what is right and good, to develop those autonomous weapons, to develop those nuclear bombs. And I'm curious, 
how do you hold those things together where God has these normative patterns that he's put into creation, but that inherent to that creation is the possibility for something that exceeds his intentions and his patterns? How do you hold that together in your thinking? Well, I think technologies we cannot endorse morally do not exceed God's sovereign guidance. Okay. That's what Isaiah 54, 16 is teaching us, which I think is one of the hardest texts in the Bible. And you've got to wrestle with this. What is God's relationship to ravaging war weapons? And you've got to address that. God can inspire inventors of inventions we cannot morally endorse. Okay. And it's under his governance. Okay. And so that's a way for him to be able to express beyond. I mean, he can express his will in a lot of different ways. Right now, he is sovereign over the life of Vladimir Putin. He sustains him. Hmm. The moment Putin said to his warlords, go and destroy those cities. The moment before he said that, God could have in a snap killed him and he dropped dead of a stroke on the ground. Right. God sustained his life. God gave him breath. God gave him energy to give that directive. Hmm. Okay. That's one of those things that you have to wrestle with Mm -hmm. God and the problem of evil. Mm -hmm. And so God has a place. God has a plan for those type of men, those types of ravagers. Hmm. And we have to understand that. And we have to have a view of God that's big enough that he governs over the Elon Musks. He governs over the Putins. He governs over non-Christians around the globe who are inventors, who are creative, who are thoughtful. God governs all of that for his ultimate purposes. And so that's, again, why if you can't reckon with Isaiah 54, 16, I think it's going to be really hard to understand God's relationship to destructive technologies. Yeah. Well, And I think, like you're saying, listeners are going to have to pick up the book and read that chapter on creators and ravagers to really wrestle through this paradox and understand how you're trying to resolve it in your thinking. Um, With that notion of ravagers, another term you use is God rejectors. And in the middle of the book, you make this claim that felt pretty bold to me. And I was pretty skeptical when I read it. But I'm curious to hear you talk about it a bit more. You said cutting edge advances will mostly come through God rejectors. So people who don't believe in Jesus will be the primary innovators of cutting edge advances is sort of how I understand what you're saying. And you go on to say, this was the creator's pattern set in place since Cain, as in Cain and Abel Mm -hmm. from Genesis. So I'm curious, can you explain and expound a little bit more on your thinking about this claim and how you got to this conclusion that cutting edge advances are going to come primarily through God rejectors? Yeah, yeah. And this comes right out of the doctrine of common grace, this robust and beautiful theological point that uh, has faded into the background. And what's left without it is this idea that God doesn't guide or direct or gift non-Christians for the flourishing of the world. Um, As if, again, God can manage Christians, yes, but he can't manage non-Christians. Non-Christians have thwarted him. They fall outside of his jurisdiction. Elon Musk is an independent operator that surely cannot be filling God's will, which is a myth. Common grace had guarded the church from this type of God belittling viewpoint for a long time. And it tells us that God indeed governs over a lineage of outright pagan unbelievers, men who will invent cities and cattle breeding and professional music industries and metallurgy. That's all Genesis four. That's like page four of our Bibles, Genesis chapter four. 
And all our city building, all of our cattle genetics, all of our metalworking, all of our music making in the future, all of it that we see today should all be traced back to those forefathers of innovation in Genesis 4. That's what Moses tells us in Genesis 4. Trace all of those industries back to these men. They're the forefathers of it. Okay. Which is crazy. <laughs> so God had a plan for Cain, right? Cain kills his brother. Cain is worthy of being executed for his crime. But God puts a mark on Cain and says, don't kill this guy. Why does God preserve his life? Because his great, great grandchildren are going to be innovators who start these three major industries that we have hmm. today. So hmm. God has a plan for Cain's wicked lineage in the same way um, that God teaches every single farmer on the planet how to farm. That point of Isaiah 28, where the religious faith of the farmer is a non-issue. God is teaching and leading all farmers across the globe, wherever you see fruitful crops mm -hmm. being raised. Mm -hmm. God in his tremendous generosity is guiding and teaching even atheist farmers how to flourish with their crop. That's the doctrine of common grace. And several theologians back in that common grace era would go back and look and say, look, Israel was not known for their technological brilliance. They weren't making the biggest ships. They weren't building the greatest monuments that the world has ever seen. Right. They were not building these huge cultural icons that people traveled around the world to see. When you look at the huge nations of the Old Testament, the Syrians, the Babylons, like that's where tech was happening. Those were the tech centers. God's people in Israel were not not called to be leaders of, of technological innovation. That was going to be left to others. That was mm. going to be left to Cain's lineage. And so mm. God has two very different plans. He has a plan for redemption in Israel, in his church, in his bride, and he has a plan for human culture making and flourishing. Mm. And that's going to be more so in Cain's lineage. Those are two different plans. They're brought about by the same Holy Spirit. Uh, Calvin says amazingly, but it's true. So same Holy Spirit, but two different plans unfolding. So the church is not today responsible for bringing about the newest, latest, greatest gadgets. Yeah, I really appreciated a comment you made that the gift of Israel was to give the world a savior and it wasn't to develop all these amazing technologies. Yeah, so there, there are technologies there that Christians are going to use. Again, for the flourishing of the church, we're going to use music, right? We're going to have drums. We're going to have keyboards. Right. And so God builds these things through one lineage that's going to bless the church. Right. Through a stewardship in the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there are going to be Christians who, <laughs> I know many Christians who are friends of mine who live in Silicon Valley. And by day, they're working at Google. And on the weekends, they're a pastor. And they live in both of those worlds. And right. that, again, is what it means to live in the city. Like, we live in Babylon. <laughs> Our mm -hmm. cities are Babylon. We mm -hmm. live in Babylon. We are living in Babylon. Yeah. We are trying to seek the flourishing of our cities while also putting our hope and our worship in a place that's not our cities. We're, we're putting our hope and our trust in a city that God is going to design and build and plant on earth in the yeah. new creation. That's our hope. But we can live in both of those storylines. We can live in both of them without confusing the two. Yeah. Again, that theme of the city throughout scripture, it starts with Cain. Yes. And then another major one is Babel. And later in the book, you state that at some point in the future, human innovation is headed for another showdown with God, just like yeah. what happened with the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And I want to read a paragraph that is just really descriptive, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. Here it is. You write, imagine a whole generation of Christians in Exodus called to put down their phones, 
close their computers, ignore the SUV in the garage, and walk out the front door of a home filled with comforts and tools and evacuate their city on foot without looking back. Maybe this will be our generation or the next generation or the generation after that one. At some point, Christians will heed the angelic decree to leave the city of man with all its wealth and power and gifts and blessings. The giver, capital G, will call us away from the wonderful temporary gifts we enjoyed every day inside the city. I'm really interested in how you reach this conclusion and Mm -hmm. if you think this is literally what it will look like, but I'm more interested in what does this mean for Christians today, both innovators, tech builders, but also everyday users of smartphones and cars, et cetera. If this is the future, if this is what we will be called to as Christians to abandon technology, why should we go on using it today if we're ultimately called to abandon it long term? Yeah. I started that paragraph by saying, use your imagination. So I am, I'm in the imaginary realm here and I'm layering some metaphors that I see in scripture, but some theological traditions would call this the rapture is sort of an extraction point of the people of God from the cities of man. And I don't know exactly what that will look like or when that happens, but it seems to take place at the end of time at the arrival of the new creation, at the arrival of the new Jerusalem, when the new Jerusalem replaces the Babylon, which is the greatest city of man to come. Mm -hmm. And my guess of what it looks like is taken from a futuristic interpretation of what happens to the city of Babylon at the end of history in Revelation 18.4. That's the key text in my thinking. Okay. There an angel calls the people of God to leave the city of man. Uh-huh. Uh, and so you have the greatest city man ever built, Babylon, which is a historic city in the past, but it's also going to be the greatest city ever built. It's a future city, pinnacle city, the greater Babel. It's a, a representative city of all cities. And this, again, is why that theology of technology, theology of the city, it's one and the same. And so the people of God will leave the cities of man, will leave Babylon. We were made for a city that was designed and built by God. And this fact, this hope holds huge ramifications for how we use our technologies here and now. Like all of our tools are gifts from God, but they're ours on loan, I think is how I would say it. Mm -hmm. And one day we'll walk out of the city, walk away from our technology and enter into a city that he designed and built for us. Mm -hmm. So how would you say that changes how we live today or does it? Well, it's, oh man, I mean, this is when you get into what it means to live as an exile in the city. If you look at Revelation chapter two and chapter three, what are fascinating about those two chapters is they're seven letters to the seven churches in the seven cities. Right. And so uh, what we're told there is basically we all live in a metaverse. <laughs> I, mean, that's what, I mean, that's beginning in the first century. Like every Christian yeah. who lived in a city lived in a metaverse. Right. You're, you're living inside of a place that's fictitious. It's got these idolatrous biases and tendencies that you have to navigate. Every city is the same. I live in Phoenix and we have all sorts of idolatrous tendencies and biases mm. here. Mm. This is where people come to retire. This is where people come to play golf. This is where people come with their toys to go out in the desert and run around with four wheelers and sand rails and whatever. <laughs> like it's a city that has all of these biases in them that says, Hey, you want to really live? You want to really enjoy life? Come and enjoy the comforts of Phoenix. Huh. Enjoy the sun. <laughs> enjoy the pool. 
get comfortable here. Huh. And that's a bias that I've got to push against. It, it's my metaverse. And, and so there's these biases and these tendencies around me that I have to navigate. And that's the same thing with our all of our technologies, all of our platforms. You know, I get a kick out of people when they say, well, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, they all have these idolatrous tendencies and biases. Yeah, that's, it. that's what it's like to live in a city. If yeah. you live in a city with a clean conscience, you can be on Instagram. You're pre-approved for Instagram, <laughs> right? Our technologies are loaded with biases. There's no neutral technologies. I don't buy that. And I don't think we get very far in our ethics to, to buy that either. We live in the metaverse. Yeah. My metaverse is called Phoenix. <laughs> and so I've got to live within that. And so part of that means this house that God has entrusted me with, this computer God has entrusted me with, this microphone I'm using, this computer screen, these lights, the seat, everything he's given me is a stewardship on loan for me to use for an eternal purpose, to love him above all else and everyone else and to love my neighbor as myself. That's what these tools are for. It's a stewardship. It's a temporary stewardship. Yeah. And I'll be done with these one day and I'll be done with the city of Phoenix one day. Huh. I'm going to exile here. And so that stewardship is really key. Mm -hmm. And it's probably the biggest gap in the church right now. We don't have a vision of stewardship yeah. and that's what we need. And that comes when you realize that these gifts are temporary. Yeah, that's really interesting. I like this notion of exile as a way of thinking about that. I also yeah. appreciate that notion of stewardship, the idea that technology is a gift, but as a gift, it's not something we possess or own, but it's something that we're given and receives. Yes. But I think for each of us, for our listeners, it is a matter of working that out in our own thinking and working out yep. what is my relationship to this technology? Am I receiving it as a gift or am I seeing it as something I possess and identify with it in, in some core identity way? There's a quote laid in the book that I just wholeheartedly agree with and had to get in here. You write, the new creation to come, we've been talking about sort of uh, revelation and the new creation a little bit. The new creation to come is rather like a creation out of the old, a resurrection like a dead body made alive. That to me is sort of this clear pattern of what God intends for all of creation. Earlier in the book, you cite that quote from Hebrews 11, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like them, we are looking forward to that city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And I'm curious, since we've talked a lot about patterns and the paradoxes of the current creation, how do you think the new Jerusalem, the new creation, might be patterned differently than our current creation? Do you think it will have the same inherent possibilities for good and evil, but that people will only choose the good? And I'm sure it's entirely speculative, but given everything you've written here, how would you speculate on that question? Yeah, this is complex. Let's start with what we do know. You're exactly right that the new creation is a rich material place. It's deeply so. It's not an ethereal cloud-like realm where we float around, right? Mm -hmm. It's a place of dirt and wood and iron and silver and gold and crystal and jewels of all sort. In fact, the Bible says it's a place of intensified material density. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what we make with foam now will be made, I don't know, with wood or something, you know, and what we make with concrete will there be made of solid Iron, maybe <laughs> on our streets that we pave with black asphalt. Right. Will there be paved with a clear see through glass of gold? Right. Whatever that is. I didn't even know. <laughs> I, I think there's like material possibilities that we can't even imagine. Right. So, yes, it's a heightened material realm. We know that. But there's a lot more that we don't know. And that's where we just venture these speculations. 
I'll sort of lead with questions, I think, and just leave it at, at kind of questions. The, the first question in my mind is, will the city of God and the new creation be delivered to us as a furnished place? Or will it be given to us like this creation is with preloaded potential hmm. that will flourish as we cultivate it? Because when I read Revelation, the new Jerusalem seems to be a furnished place. Okay. Number two, how do we view Cain's inventive lineage, th- that inventive lineage that we've talked about? And how did it set the stage for all human industry? And what happened when that entire lineage and all of their tools were washed off the face of the earth? That's interesting to think about because it leads to like the third question. And that is what role did the ark play in midwifing technology into the restart of humanity? Hmm. And this, I think, is the biggest question that if I could answer this, I would be able to answer your question with a lot more authority. But in some way, the Ark carried all of the technological advances of Cain's lineage into the creation's restart uh-huh. after the flood. Uh-huh. When Cain and all their city building technologies and, I mean, all their cities, their tech, their know-how, all of that was washed down the toilet of a global flood, okay, mm-hmm. which is incredible. So now you have Noah's Ark midwifed all known human technology into the restart of humanity. Hmm. So that that raises the question, will Christ play a similar role of a second Noah in the new creation? Will he somehow midwife the innovations that we built today and bring some form of a purified form of that into the new creation? This again, surprisingly, comes from Ilyul. <laughs> I had never thought of this until he raised that. Well, I was on to the Noah was Noah had midwife technology from let's call it first creation pre-flood to the second creation post-flood. Noah midwifes all technology in his in his ark. Ilyul mm. suggested, what if Christ midwife's technology into the new creation. He he wasn't mm. even thinking about the ark. I don't think that even crossed his mind. And that sparked a thought in my mind, like, whoa, God has already done this before. So this goes back to your earlier question, what should we think of technology today? Like, should we keep building rockets to go to Mars? Should we keep building jets? And my answer to that is yes, because mm. we don't know if we're going to use rockets and jets in the new creation. And those technologies are just going to pick up where we leave off. In other words, we shouldn't think of Cain's lineage as though these were super inventive guys who just got wiped off the face of the earth and forgotten about. Like, that's not how it worked. Their innovations carried over into the restart of the new creation post-flood. And so I wonder if there's some sort of a redemptive role that Christ plays in taking the technologies. Maybe we'll fly in jets in the new creation to get around, you know, and we'll pick right up with the jet engines that we have. So those are four big questions. Really hard to answer definitively. Yeah. Years back, a friend of mine and I had lunch with two of our favorite theologians, Richard Gaffin and Greg Beal, two dearly beloved theologians. We met at a diner in Philly, and they sat right on the other side of the booth from us. And Greg Beal was right across from me. And uh, he's a man who knows more about the book of Revelation than anyone who has ever lived. Huh. I and mean, this guy is a genius. So at one point in the conversation, I told him I was writing on technology. And uh, I asked him point blank in Revelation, do you see any evidence anywhere for a heightened technological existence in the new creation? Okay. I, I, I mean, I had this sentence worked out. I, yeah. knew, I wanted to be very direct. And he froze his body. He froze his hands on the table. Huh. He looked me dead in the eyes and he said with no emotion, no, there's no evidence in Revelation for a heightened technological existence in the new creation. And the way he said it, word for word, body frozen, sort of deadpan, 
it punctuated a force. It, it was like a forceful way for him to say, punk, I think I know what you're trying to do. Don't speculate. Don't go there. <laughs> Don't make predictions about tech and the new creation. So, you know, alas. Interesting. With the caution of speculation, I do hold out hope that, according to Isaiah 2.4, I think it is, in the new creation, war tools will come to an end and every war weapon will be recycled into yeah. farm tools, right, right, right. Which is a it's a glorious text that comes to mind whenever I see images of Ukrainian farmers towing tanks with tractors. <laughs> but yeah, we have to use caution, yeah. And to be clear, that this discussion can proceed only on the basis of a lot of conjecture that we can't substantiate in the end. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that idea of the ark as midwife is an intriguing one. It reminded me of a similar idea that Andy Crouch uses in his book Culture Making, where he talks about technology passing through the eye of a needle. It's this idea that it has to be refined enough and purified enough to be made fit for the new creation mm-hmm. and that it needs to be purified of the dross and the negative patterns, the things that are designed into it today that do lead us away from God. Yeah, like you said, it's certainly speculative and different people are going to have different perspectives on that. So thank you. Tony, is there anything else? We've covered a lot of ground here. Is there anything else that you would hope listeners of Device and Virtue will take away in their thinking and use of tech or that we didn't get to cover from the book that you think will be worth their time? Well, we did cover a lot of ground on this uh, <laughs> we did. interview. I think this is the longest interview I've done. Well, thank you for doing it. I appreciate it. Oh, this is great. This is great. There's a bunch of other Bible texts to work through. I've just mentioned a few of them. So I hope everyone is led deeper into their Bibles. That's our authority. I believe it speaks to our digital age. I believe yeah. it speaks beyond it. I believe it speaks to the age of Musk and Zuckerberg and Meta and Twitter and self-driving cars and bots and AI and crypto. I think all of that. <laughs> Absolutely. We can you know, be guided by principles in the Bible. But mostly I want people to take away from the book the incredible generosity of God. That's what I want above all things, because I'm convinced that until we can break that sort of anti-tech posture of the church, we'll never reach tech gratitude. Yeah. And if we can never openly praise God for our smartphones and for social media <laughs> and for our cars and for our houses and our jets and our power plants and buildings and cities, if we can't ever voice thanks to him for our innovations, mm. we will never reach tech stewardship. Mm. And in the tech discussion, this is the church's greatest weakness right now. And one of the consequences of the dystopians and the Luddites having the microphone for the past 100 years is we don't have gratitude for tech. Mm-hmm. And because we don't have gratitude for tech, we don't have stewardship for tech. Mm. So pastors don't know what to say to their people. Parents don't know what to say to their teenagers. All we're left with is don't use that device. Don't download that app. Stop doing that thing on your smartphone. No, you're not getting a smartphone until you're this age. All we know how to do is say, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. And because we can't thank God for our technology, we can't teach our people, teach our churches, teach our teenagers tech stewardship to envision them for a life of honoring God, loving God, and serving others through the tools that he's given us. It's going to take a long time, but it begins by reframing the whole conversation around new paradigms rooted in scripture. And that's what I hope my book accomplishes in the decades ahead. I hope people see things they've never seen before in scripture to frame this conversation. Thanks, Tony. The book is God, Technology, and the Christian Life. Thanks for making this your longest interview. I feel (laughs) very grateful for that and very lucky. So thanks for spending time with us. Well, thanks for your forbearance, Adam. I appreciate it. Hey, good interview. (laughs) Well, thanks to Tony. He had a lot to say. We had a lot that we covered. I hope we represented the book pretty well. 
Yeah, I hope so too because I actually like I'll be. <laughs> uh, I got to listen to the interview. I did not read the book except for the first, <laughs> and so yeah. I have reactions and thoughts. However, it will be with a caveat <laughs> that I didn't actually get to go through his full uh, yeah. argument. Well, I'll try and defend him if I need to. <laughs> well, Tony, you know, I got your back. <laughs> wait, <laughs> this interview was really interesting. And right off the top, he uses a number of scriptures that I don't know. Have you? I haven't seen other writers yeah. on technology and faith right. doing those scriptures. No, not at all. Right. So there are like new verses in here yeah. that he's pulling out going, hey, check this out, check this out. That's worth already the book. Like, I mean, he mentions like Isaiah 54, 16, and that was in the interview, yep. right? Where he talks about like God creating the ironsmith and behind the, the ravages, creating the ravages. That's the Hebrew word, right? For the sort of create. And the bad guys and the good guys, essentially. Right. And and he's mentioning that the good guys is like a technological technologist. <laughs> Right. You know, is the Ironsmith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's interesting. It's super fascinating, right? Yeah, we haven't treated that verse ever, so nope, I feel like, oh, nope. guess we should be going back to the Bible <laughs> looking for some more. <laughs> and he is reciting scripture left and right throughout the episode. You're going to pull up the book and you're going to be checking your Bible app or your or your Bible, the other thing. That, oh, yeah, like because the Bible app isn't a Bible app. <laughs> and you're going to be looking up these verses. So it definitely takes you deeper into scripture, which is awesome. You know, the other thing he did was list some of the, like, the thinkers, the theologians, yeah. or church hist- history sort of figures that he interacts with. And I immediately, of course, noticed that he's interacting with um, what a lot of people would call the Reformed camp. Right. right? John Calvin, of course. <laughs> right, right. And Kuiper and others. I have a couple of different thoughts. But the first one is around this idea that he mentions a, a number of times. It's called common grace. Yeah. He used that term a bunch throughout the episode. Right, right, right. And a lot of pastors will know this, but for people that are familiar, you know, common grace is a very, like, very reformed term. Right. It's not used in other um, traditions of theology, but it's used a lot in the tradition of the reformed theology, like Calvinism. And, you know, it has that to do with the idea that God saves us all. It sort of is going along with this, like, soteriology, which is, of course, salvation, depravity, election. These are all words that you usually hear in that context. And it's like God, like in Ephesians and also sort of in Colossians, we have that idea that God selects some for salvation. And this is like the term election. Yeah. And Calvinism usually takes that as individuals that are are elected. Other traditions don't. But, But the other thing about is the emphasis on God's sovereignty, right? He's really big. Yeah. He's outside time. Uh, and it's a really cool emphasis, actually. It's a really helpful emphasis for the church overall. Mm-hmm. But then you get the logic going and you get this covenant. <laughs> and I, I'm, by the way, going to say this and everyone's going to hear me. I am a former, I grew up in the Calvinist tradition. Mm-hmm. My dad is ordained in Presbyterian Church of America. I am not now. So I'm suing this from a, sort of an outside the camp for friendly. <laughs> Post-reformed. <laughs> but knowing a decent amount of it, but Tony would be able to correct me a lot. But the, the whole idea of common grace is like God's grace is for those he's saving. Okay. So like if you're, people are saved, they're the elect, his grace goes to them. Why would grace go to other people? Calvin sort of gets into this, you know, and so uh, grace goes towards for salvation. But that means there's a lot of people that aren't saved and the, right. the grace doesn't go to them. And so everybody else is an enemy of God, Calvin would put it. Okay. And well, gosh, that sounds really harsh. And so you have Calvinists sort of saying, but there are some good things out there that aren't salvation, right? Like you go right. to the Art Institute and look at a beautiful painting. And was that done by a Christian? Maybe, because there's a lot of great Christian artists, or maybe not. And Because there's a lot of great non-Christian artists. And so do we call, in Calvinism, there's a lot of debate of like, can we call that painting, that beautiful painting, good at all? If it yeah. was not part of salvation, right, right? Right. So the common grace idea is like, well, there, God does do good things outside of saving people. Okay. Which might seem obvious to other people that have thought about theology, <laughs> but this is a big debate in Calvinism. So when he talked about 
technology being part of the common grace. I'm like, oh, this is great. This is a good category for that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm familiar with common grace. I'm familiar with the reformed tradition, but yeah, it's not my tradition either. And so... Uh, I have a general notion, so thanks for kind of explaining. Well, yeah, yeah, sorry. I'm explaining, I'm not trying to explain at you, but you know, like no, just sort of no, thinking really through good. it. But but then he said, hey, this sort of ended at the World War, like World War I, right? World War II. And it's yeah, really that cool. Was super interesting. Yeah, so he's like, by the time we, we are able to create a bomb that right. kills tons of people, right. it's really hard to look at that. It's easier to say man is totally depraved after right, that right not say there's beautiful paintings everywhere right right, <laughs> right right the common grace theme goes down he says and so that made some sense but i have some butts on that so just thinking okay. through some history can i can i throw some history pieces for a second at you <laughs> sure. just about common grace because i think it's more fair to say and he's going to be able to correct me that common grace it's been a debate for like all of time. It's not just like we were into it before then and then at the World War II it ended. Right. Like for instance, Augustine, who's you and I have talked about many times before, one of the most famous theologians of all time in the early 400s, he writes some pretty harsh things about heathens, he would call <laughs> sort of call them. Like he looks at the pagan world and he says all the good things, the the philosophers and the art and the architecture, the only reason that they do those good things is because they want to get the praise for themselves Mm -hmm. or they want to avoid pain. Right. He essentially says everyone is negative. There's no good in that at all. God is not doing good in that. Mm -hmm. And it's called splendid vices. Like they're actually vices, but on the outside it looks good, but in the inside it's evil. Okay. So uh, a philanthropist today who has billions of dollars but doesn't believe in Jesus may do it out of the... So, quote unquote, goodness of his heart, but but it's Augustine really it's not the goodness of his heart. Actually, okay. it's the okay. goodness of he just wants the credit, yeah, or whatever. He wants know? to establish his legacy, or she right, wants to right, establish right, their legacy, right, right? Okay, so that's uh, for hundreds, and he was already arguing against this common grace thing. So Tony's sort of saying we had it before, but then it ended the World Wars. I'm like, well, no, like one of the biggest figures in theology was really pretty harsh on whether there could be good things. And if there had been technology at that time, I think he probably would have put some of that on the same camp. By the way, forgiveness, I know I'm going to have theologians pop into me because I'm sort of summarizing that. Tony sounds really Kuyperian. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> Abraham Kuyper, he's like in the 1800s, like really late 1800s. He's a really cool figure. If people haven't looked him up, like he was the a professor. He founded the Free University of Amsterdam. Oh, cool. And then winds up being the, um, the prime minister of the Netherlands. So yeah. so I associate with Kuiper the f- phrase every square inch yes, of yes, creation yes. is God's. Exactly. In spheres of grace or spheres of influence. And he talks about God as king over politics, of education, of economies. So Again, God, that sovereignty notion. A little correct. Bit. Yeah. So God, be, God would be king of, over technology too, right? Yeah, and right. so I think it sounds like Tony really likes him. There's another theologian named Bavink who I don't actually know very well, but I think he's writing in similar terms, like mm-hmm. a lot of common grace. God's working through all these other things, even if they're not obviously salvation and the church. Yeah, I think Bavink has been translated in like the last 10 years and has become kind of someone that a lot of people are paying attention to sense. because they can read him now in English. <laughs> But but the debate just keeps on going. Like before the World War II in the 1920s, there's actually a famous theologian that talked about God doesn't send even even rain and sunshine, like beautiful things, 
an unbelievers are not are not good. God doesn't do that in love. In fact, he has this really well-known metaphor. He says, rain for a living tree waters it and makes it grow, but rain for a dead tree causes it to rot, like mm, a rotting interesting. stump. So, I mean, like, again, this sort of split of, like, if you're not a Christian, if you're not sort of in the in crowd, there's nothing good outside of that. Mm. So, again, on this technology, you know, Tony's talking about, Apple and smartphones and all these things being created by non-Christians, but that's other theologians sort of saying, no, that wouldn't count. Hmm. And then Karl Barth is really famous. Like it's during Hitler, it's during the Nazis, it's the 1940s. You know, he's watching Hitler kill millions of people and call it Christianity. And he's like, you can't use common grace like that. Like he's like, that's just sort of like this baptized Christian culture, Hitler Christianity. So Bart really pulls back on that as well. Hmm. And and that's what that's what Tony's talking about. Like Bart and others start saying we can't use that. I, I'm so it sounds like you are arguing against the notion of common grace. No, no, no. See, I would be with him on this. The guy that really influences me the most would be Richard Mao, and he didn't bring him up, but he's uh, about 20, 25 years ago, was the president of Fuller Seminary, but in Reformed Camp, he wrote a book called He Shines in All That's Fair. Okay. And Richard Mao would agree with Tony saying common grace is everywhere, and the rain and the sun do, the blessings of God do fall outside of just Christians, and they do fall to the artist, and they do fall to the technologist. So, I guess the point is, it does matter what your theological worldview is when we look at all these technologies. If you sort of have this really like common grace is not the right category thing, you start seeing the whole world as the Titanic. The the Titanic? (laughs) Like, we got to get off the ship. The ship is sinking. God is only giving grace, only saving the people that he's pulling off the Titanic and the whole rest of the world is going down. Mm -hmm. Whereas people that believe in the common grace sort of say, no, God is going to sort of do more than just save the very few off the ship. It really does affect how you see technology in the world. And I like where he, how he gets to this conclusion that says there has to be common grace. But it's been a big debate in the reform camp for a long time. Okay, so you're saying the notion of common grace has a long history of discussion and debate, even going back to someone like Augustine. Right, who who takes an opposing view? He takes an opposing view, yeah. Although I think he talks a little bit of two sides of his mouth. Again, I'm not an expert, but he went using all the rhetoric and logic that he learns in Rome for all his arguments as a theologian. So he's clearly using the secular, you know. And my whole view is not really being in that camp, and I think you would agree with some of this. I use a different kind of language. I'm like, God is a good God Mm -hmm. who made a good creation. Sin and rebellion is real. There's actual bad people and bad things, but God is remaking all things right. So I think of the kingdom of God lens. I think of like yeast through dough, all individuals in creation, all sort of linked in salvation. So I don't really need common grace, like to split it out, like who is, where is the good grace and where's the bad grace? I think the whole world is sort of shot through both these things. And maybe it gets a little difficult to have this sort of discussion where you're trying to figure out where is God's grace and where isn't (laughs) Well, I'm thinking about that verse, God is willing that none should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. From that sort of perspective, God is continually working in the lives of all people, moving them towards eternal life, bringing that grace into their life so that even as they get caught up in the pattern of God's grace, the flow of God's grace, they may be caught up in creating beautiful art, in creating good technology. And in being a philanthropist with some flicker 
of the spirit of God kind of fanning into flame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this gets a little nerdy because what you just described sounds a little bit to me like provenient grace, which is another another category that some people compare to common grace. Mm -hmm. It comes from John Wesley, so it's usually seen as Wesleyan. But that's sort of this idea of the grace before someone gets saved, like the grace that leads us back to God, Mm -hmm. which is also a category. But the question is, to create a good smartphone, do you have to be being led back to God at that moment? Or can God work through Steve Jobs, who's a Buddhist? You know, like like maybe it's a tough question for a lot of Christians, you Mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. I want to say that God is definitely working through the sort of the Steve Jobs as Mm -hmm, a Buddhist kind of thing. You know, Tony in the book says that too, right? He even talks about God working through Cain, God working through a lot of people that aren't Christians at all. He talks about these different nations, right? The Syrians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians all have these are contributing technologically, but Israel really isn't. And if we do see technology as part of God's good creation and as part of God's future creation, right? then there is a notion in which even if non-Christians are creating it, they are participating in the redemption of all things. They just don't get to benefit from it. They may do it. They may build yeah, social right, media right, for right. their own, to build their own platform, to build their own brand and their own identity. But in the end, they don't they don't receive the long-term benefits of the technology they they created out of their own selfish motives, but that actually creates good for all people in the long run. That's actually a second point. You just brought it up and you were, right before we hit record, you were asking me about it. <laughs> the idea of like, does technology go with us? Yeah. So that the heaven or to the kingdom of God, right? Yeah. And that's a great question that he gets into, right? Yeah, he got into it. I liked his stuff there a lot. He sort of talked about this Christ as the new Noah's Ark. Almost this picture of the animals get carried through the flood. Like Mm. God says, carry this, carry this, carry this with you to sort of the other side. But it's not everything, is it? Some things are destroyed and some things are carried through. Right. I mean, when you look at Revelation, you see both human-made things and God-made things that carry through and human-made things and God-made things that don't carry through. So the temple yeah. in the New Jerusalem doesn't exist. The sun and the moon don't exist. Those are human-made things and God-made things. It is that sort of notion of through the ark. You know, he uses the notion of Christ's death and resurrection as somehow bearing into mm-hmm. the new creation mm-hmm. some portion of what we've created. Like it's all of creation goes through that, that mm-hmm. sort of death and resurrection, as opposed to the whole world burns and it's recreated. Actually, it's redeemed. Right. The the, the phrase that stood out to me with all this was, we all live in a metaverse. <laughs> <laughs> right? right? But yeah. this is all related because he's sort of saying we're living, and actually it got very like Neo-Morpheus, like, <laughs> like sort of very Matrix-y, because he's like, I live in a metaverse called Phoenix, Arizona. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, in other words, like I'm in a world where there are certain things that are sort of created for me, the value the culture, all this, and it creates biases. And we're going to move out of that, but we're still moving into a world. Like they're related, they're different, but related. You know, yeah. kudos for him, like using very current terms right now. Yeah, like, yeah, everyone's yeah, back yeah. in the metaverse. Well, Check out our metaverse episode. Yeah, well, <laughs> and in our metaverse episode, <laughs> yeah, we sort of <laughs> talked a little bit about the city as a metaverse. That notion of the city draws our attention towards certain things and yeah. says that those things are important. And the metaverse does the same thing. It says, these are the things you should pay attention to. Phoenix says, here's a pool. 
and here is the sun and (laughs) yeah you know it's the comfortable life and that's what you should pay attention to and aspire to right you know the metaverse says that this guy dressed as a dragon is important (laughs) (laughs) adam brings out the random thing from his imagination i love it maybe while we're on the topic of the city as a metaverse and the city in general. The city plays a big part in this book. We should do an episode on cities. We should. You know, I, I ca- totally agree. You like how I just stole that from you? <laughs> you said that to me earlier. <laughs> oh, no. it was my idea. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we totally should. We've talked about the city multiple times. But he goes into talking about abandoning the city, the way that the people of God abandoned Babylon, m- maybe a little bit the way that uh, Lot and his wife abandoned Sodom. You know, okay. it's this notion that God's going to destroy the city and so Christians should get out of it. And somehow he wraps in technology into that as being this, being of the same fabric as the city. He calls us then to abandon. How do you make sense of that notion of abandoning our technology at the end of all things? I mean, I know there was a quote about us at the end of time, we walk away from like our smartphone or something and walk, he calls us away from our houses and our smartphones and we walk away on, on foot or something, which was sort of a beautiful little picture, but I don't feel like he was saying abandon at all. I, he's saying it gets, things get carried through like that Noah's Ark analogy again, mm-hmm. in some ways, like I think that was an image for some things are destroyed. The Babylon is destroyed, but Jerusalem is built that. Okay that a city is still there, that parts of the technology, I mean, I mean, he was even talking about rockets and like, don't, we shouldn't stop rocket science, you know, Elon Musk, he likes Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what we think about Elon Musk altogether as, as we go. But, you know, he, we shouldn't stop the rocket research because we could still use the rocket research. You right. know, you know, he's not saying that all research goes away or technology goes away, but somehow it's transformed, redeemed, brought through the flood. Yeah. And, and so that, that's the picture I was getting. That remains a little fuzzy for me. Right. And we got into a lot of speculation towards the end. Yeah. yeah but that's yeah. what's interesting. I guess the last thing I had mentioned, and there were so many good things in your guys' interview, is the idea of patterns yeah. embedded in creation. Yeah. That was a big theme I noticed. That we can sort of find what God has laid out almost like Secret map lines in the <laughs> yeah. universe. He, he called science the art of listening. Yeah. Like, or maybe the art of finding, I don't yeah. know if he would say finding God. She didn't use a lot of revelation language, but general revelation is a category I would use there, which is like sort of God revealing in his creation. The biblical analogy he used, which was really great, is Israel, you know, Joshua, and sending the spies into the promised land. And they're looking for the land of milk and honey. Yeah. But that also is the land of like iron. Yeah. In not just the milk and honey, but the things that you would make technology out of. That's a sort of a fun analogy. That's pretty interesting. And Israel was in the iron age and that's yeah. the making of tools and weapons, the technologies. And he's not like that's incidental, but he's like that God sort of knew that. He sent them into a land full of iron. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His notion of sovereignty goes really deep yeah, right. in, yeah, in yeah. this sense. I mean, he, he very, see that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, that's great. It is. I guess when I say deep, I mean, very particular. God put this copper deposit and that iron deposit in these spots yeah, yeah. to be discovered at this time. I mean, that could entirely be the case. I, you know, I'm not trying to nail down the time and the day when God did X, Y, and Z. It almost makes me think of modern video games. 
like yeah. you know these big the open East, world uh, games where you can like run around in the game and there's like mountains and things yeah. i play zelda all the time and it's like this right and, yeah. and it's such a huge world that now programmers will use sort of like a, a little bit of an ai thing to generate a bunch of mountains over here and they don't actually know everything that's in there mm-hmm. yeah like okay. it, like you know it might make mountain oh, coded mountains sure. or coded yeah. land and then they go back and fill you know they yeah. put they'll put a sword you can find here or right. a treasure chest over here but the reality is like every little bit of it isn't controlled in detail yeah he seems to be saying every inch is yeah. like controlled by a sovereign god in that way yeah that seems to be where his thinking is going where the logic is going i would kind of fall in this space of thinking there are more general constraints and rules but not getting down to those particulars necessarily yeah, right right one thing that it really challenged me to think about because he's talking about how creation is sort of inspiring people it also has its own constraints and it had me thinking about the ways that technology is ambivalent and what i mean by ambivalent is it can be used for both good and evil right and as i worked through the book and worked through these ideas of patterns and god's sovereignty the pattern for me in technology that technology reveals in some sense is one of free will so it's this idea that I can use technology for good and I can use it use it for evil. Mm-hmm. And in some sense, that was the intention of God in the creation that mm-hmm. he made. It is up to our own wills to decide how we use it. But God, in some ways, sovereignly set creation in place as this evidence of our own free will. And, and it helps me then sort of see technology as an expression of humanity's freedom within god's sovereignty what do you think of that well i think the reformed tradition would say the free will you're talking about is god at the end of the day even if it feels like you have that free will is 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 accomplishing his purposes and so um, you will be feeling like you have open world access and uh, you found the treasure chest if you wanted to or you bashed someone in the head with it yeah but that that at the end of the day, he got you to the end of the game and you're going to fight the bad guy whether or not you knew you were going there. That, like, yeah. like the video game analogy actually sort of works for the summer. <laughs> got, there's both a specific of putting the little things around the video game and there's also like it's slowly crafting the story and bringing you yes. into the end. Yes. And so both of those are going to happen even though you sort of have free will, like a will of some sort inside of that other bigger will of mm-hmm. God's will. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, it gets real hard. Yeah, like it really I like does. it. For instance, when we deal with the problem of evil, you have to ask, well, God's good, so what was this accomplishing? Yeah. Every time there's a bad thing, you have to say, well, what was God's plan? Yeah. And I think that's a really rough way to deal with evil because it's not helpful to be, we can't know God's plan really in that sense. So asking those questions, at least in a church sense, makes no sense especially uncomforting um <laughs> and tony certainly everyone wouldn't agree with me on that but yeah t- tony cer- certainly does his work of trying to wrestle with the problem of evil early in the book which oh, surprised cool. me kind of as a reader i i wasn't expecting that as the lead off in the discussion well it sounds like in a lot of churches and, and theologians he's been interacting with there was so much negative yeah he was talking about so many naysayers yeah so much that technology is related to the evil in the world and yeah. that he wanted to say something differently yeah yeah i think it is a huge challenge i mean the the nuclear bomb in two world wars yeah killing people at scale like we don't have a nuclear bomb of good Interesting. and to bring it back to our first public conversation we were talking about this good and evil question huh. there's not a nuclear bomb of good Goodness happens by plodding along, but there is a nuclear bomb that can kill and destroy. And why is that? 
And I think maybe it's the evidence of sin in the heart of man that we haven't been able to create this nuclear bomb of good. I mean, well, I think you've never been to a Taylor Swift concert, but... <laughs> that's, that's true. I've never been to a Taylor Swift concert. <laughs> that's the most junior high girl response I could have ever had. No, it's a really good, another mind-blowing thought from Adam over there. I love it. Well, the book is God, Technology, and the Christian Life by Tony Ranke. It was fantastic. I do commend it. Again, we I are... I am actually going to have to go back and read some more of these chapters. So, like... Absolutely. It's, it's, it's definitely yeah. worth it. Yeah. And we'll, hopefully we'll have some of our loyal listeners get a free copy. Yeah. Okay, Chris. You know... It's that time again. It's time for vice or virtue. Do you have one? Nope. <laughs> Elon Musk. <laughs> Mr. Elon Musk. Mr. Uh, Elon Musk. The new he, owner of Twitter. <laughs> yeah, soon to be, it but seems. Founder of Tesla. X. Wow, I don't think we've ever done a person in. We haven't. In a vice or I, I, I hesitate to label a person as a vice or a virtue. But but Tony did bring him up. Like he mentioned him in his book uh, as a creator, sort of one of these people that's a technological creator that sort of maybe like God is using for his ultimate purposes. So yes, yeah, oh, interesting. <laughs> Elon Musk. I mean, he is creating these whole rocket ship to Mars things, and then he's got I, the boring company. People are really scared of him right now because they don't know what he's going to do with Twitter. And, you know, he spent like just tons of money on Twitter, just, you know, this billions of dollars. Did that get finalized? Yeah. I mean, it was a very confusing story that went back and forth for the period of about four weeks. So a lot of people are worried about what he's going to do with Twitter. I'm a wait and see on that. <laughs> but I think Elon Musk is a sort of a serial entrepreneur that became a serial entrepreneur billionaire. Yeah. And has created a lot of things that are going to sort of change the world. I mean, including like the solar panel shingles for houses. Oh, yeah. You know, I saw that advertised on Instagram the other day. He sent these satellite dishes to the Ukraine. Yeah, so they Starlink, can use them, right? Starlink, right? So they can use them in the war. Unfortunately, Wired Magazine reports that they don't work as well as they should. But I have liked Tesla since it started. <laughs> I, you know, I have a hybrid car, but I always wanted an electric one and wanted it to be like a viable option. And he's, mm -hmm. he turned the world into thinking about electric cars as a viable thing. I think that's super cool. I also just love that cars can download updates. Uh, <laughs> although I think you're kind of the person that really wants a stick shift car. Anyway, just for Tesla and having a cool, huge screen, a car that can get new features overnight, I think he's a virtue. All right. Well, I know my 15-year-old nephew has a bit of a man crush on oh, wow. Elon. Really? He likes to invoke him whenever we're having conversations about technology and culture. I've heard a critique about Tesla and Elon that if he really cared about the environment, he would figure out ways to make cities more walkable, not invent a car that he can capitalize on. But oh, you can't gosh. make money to help people walk around cities. And so Tesla is a much easier way to make a uh, billion dollars than making cities well, walkable. Well, you know, I like, so, I like biking and walking, but I also think electric cars. So you get, it's got to be the heart of the whole plan. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. That said, Elon Musk is someone who God created and created for his good purposes. And for that alone... I call him a virtue. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Going with the, the image of God argument, I'm with it. Device and Virtue is an independent podcast partner with the Christianity Today Creative Studio. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, support us on Patreon, and find out more at deviceandvirtue.com.
This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.